You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Grass withers, flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So we're returning this morning to our text in 1 Peter again, focusing hopefully on the next verse in the passage, verse 4. And honestly, I'm probably doing this wrong uh, according to the world's standards with, um, with all the struggle uh, as, I, as we continue to kind of forcefully go through or work our way through First Peter chapter 4. Um, all the, the struggle and confusion that's going on in the church over who we are and what we are doing. There are many gurus who would probably tell me that this 30 minutes needs to go to vision casting and talking about the church and all these sorts of things and, and all of this and making my points because, you know, you really should use this 30 minutes to make your points. And so while that may be true in a sense, it, it also, that is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my 30 minutes to make my points because my ultimate point, my ultimate driving factor is this. I want us to know Christ and to make him known. I want to know Christ and to make him known. I just mentioned that again because it isn't as though Darren has nothing else to say. If you've been around me, you know Darren has many things to say about many things. Don't get me started. But I have one thing I really want to say above all. And it is, to, it is to point to the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. If this church rises or falls, if any other church rises or falls, if people are drawn to treasure Christ, then good work has been done. If you in the pews this morning are edified to look to Jesus and to put your hope in him and to trust in him and not yourself and to look forward to the future dawning day when Christ returns and brings your inheritance to you, then we have succeeded this morning. This is the one reason why, this is one reason why I'm content to just hang out here in these verses. What's the aim here? I'm trying to help us see the anchor that Peter wants us to, wants to sink deep into their hearts of these Christians that are reading this book, which includes us. He's wanting to sink an anchor into our hearts because he knows, remember I've emphasized many times, the, the difficulty and the struggle that he himself is living through in jail in Rome 
and that the, these people, these churches, the dispersion gathered there in modern day Turkey, the, the persecution and the trials and the troubles that they are dealing with, let alone just the trials and troubles of daily life. I mean, you know, you know, sometimes you don't need a lot of external persecution to be happening to you to get really discouraged and down over life. Sometimes all it takes is just sickness within your own family or not feeling well or all kinds of just various uh, just emotional difficulties. There's all sorts of trials and troubles that comes in an individual's life. And there is incredible truth and reality for the Christian that Peter is beckoning us to join with him in rejoicing over. Remember, he starts out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's rejoicing. He's rejoicing in something and calling us to join him in this rejoicing. Because let's be honest. We, we all, not that I'm, I, I hate when people say that. I'm not sure why I just said that. Because like, I'm going to be honest right now. All the rest of the time I'm going to lie to you. But right now, let's be honest. No, I'm going to seek to be honest the whole time. <laughs> but, you know, we all want something real to rejoice in. Something real. Like there's this whole push back towards analog. Like towards like physical, um, just Items, all of this stuff has gone to the cloud, right? So there's this big push now to buy your music analog, like to actually get a big plastic disc and own the music and play it instead of just like streaming it from somewhere. Like there's this big resurgence of trying to grasp real. We all want something real. Oftentimes, um, you know, abstract ideas, they're nice. Things that live in the cloud of ideas, they're nice, they're interesting. Psychological understandings and explanations can give some sense of comfort to a moment of time, some abstracting, some thinking. You know, it can be helpful and comforting. But oftentimes, what you really want is just something real. And you don't have to go any further to, to know this, is to ask a kid. How many kids, you know, have had grown up and they wanted a horse. You know, they asked for a pony. They asked for a pony. They want a pony. And so what do you do? You buy him a stick horse. And they're like, yeah, nice. That ain't a horse. And so then you go, you buy them a plastic horse. You might even buy them, they now, I think it was at Costco or something, they had this big furry thing you could sit on and actually ride a furry horse. No, they want a horse. That's what they know what it is. And they want something real. It doesn't fly to try to get something almost real. We want something real. Similarly, when you um, want to hold one of your loved ones, a conversation over a phone it just doesn't quite cut it, does it? Like we've just come out of sort of the whole Zoom, like uh, Zoom prison that was life, where every conversation you had to have was through a digital screen. And, you know, if you ever, you know, we go on vacation and it's, and when we don't take the kids, we go off somewhere for a couple nights. We might, we'll FaceTime the kids. And it's nice to see them and talk to them. But it isn't the same as something real, being able to hold them, being able to give them a hug. You know, there's a ton of research or very interesting research out there that just talks about the power of physical touch of just being able to hold someone, just being able to be held, the power of a hug. I mean, just the, the power that there is in something real. You can have tons of conversation, 
But when it crosses that line to actual a handshake or a hug, being around someone, we all long for something real. Yesterday, we, I was out walking in the heat and saw a couple of people out on their walk. And we had the conversation about, the, you know, the exercise. When it's real hot, just pretend like you're in a snowstorm. It's, neat. it's a neat abstraction, right? So you just, I'm going to pretend like it's snowing out. It's a neat abstraction, but you know what? It doesn't work, right? It's actually quite dumb. You know, the idea doesn't work. It's an abstraction, but then once you get out of your thoughts, you realize you're just standing there sweating. Um, we want reality. Um, the difference between abstraction, how excited, like, I don't know if you pay much attention to, like, uh, astronomy nerd stuff, but, you know, Einstein has this theory out there of relativity and that gravity can actually bend time and space, and it's wicked and wild. But he's had this theory for many years published out there, this theory of, of, of relativity, and E equals mc squared, and all, all of this stuff works. But every time a scientist looks into a telescope and they see the effects of it, it makes big news because it's no longer a theory. It's like when, when light bends around a black hole, they're like, Einstein was right. You know, it's because it's, it's getting out of the abstract into realness, something real. It becomes something real. I looked up um, a chemical uh, reaction, and I was going to try to read it to you, but honestly, I couldn't even read it. It was the most unexciting uh, thing to read. I mean, it, maybe if Tiger were here, he'd be excited about reading the chemical reaction of these elements and all the stuff that happens in the gas and all these equations. And it just is an actual, it's an absolute snooze fest to read it. But what it was describing was taking vinegar and baking soda and putting them together. Now, reading about that happening and the chemical reaction that's happening, not all that interesting, abstractly. But isn't it a ton of fun to like build a volcano and put baking soda and vinegar in it and watch it explode? That's fun. That's something real. Well, we want something real. We are real people. We are corporeal. We have bodies. We want realness. What's it have to do with our passage this morning? Peter is highlighting something ultra real. Real. Christianity often gets the billing that we deal with pie-in-the-sky sort of thinking. Like we, we put our thoughts, you know, um, is it Marx that says the religion is the opiate of the people. And he means it very negatively, that basically we just kind of get high and airy and just kind of forget whatever, and it becomes very cerebral. Christianity is not abstract only. It deals with realities. And what Peter is trying to drive at, this rejoicing is not in abstractions about God, but in the reality of God and what he's doing, something real. And what he's highlighting is more real than anything we've ever known. More real than anything we've ever known. As much as we long for real things, Peter's calling our eyes up to something even more real than we can have ever experienced in this life. Why is it more real? Because all of the real things in this life have expiration dates. All the real, maybe not printed on the side of the carton like your milk, but everything real in this life has an expiration date. And you know, it's kind of wicked to think about, I mean, in a couple hundred years, if the world continues on, 
you know, these buildings, you know, they're, they're all different. They're all, you know, we, they, these, these things have expiration dates. All of life has, all of the reality that we know has expiration dates. These, the, the world has, is, is not as permanent as we like to think that it is. But what Peter is writing about doesn't have an expiration date. It's something more real. It doesn't have an expiration date. He calls it our inheritance. He calls it our inheritance. Now, the word inheritance, we could just do a little statement. What, what do you think of when you hear the word inheritance? Well, I don't really care what you think of. Just kidding. Uh, but, but what does the Bible say about the word inheritance? That's the question we want to answer. When he's talking about inheritance, it isn't what do we think of, but what does Scripture speak of in this word inheritance. How does the Bible use this word? Peter, steeped in his Old Testament as a faithful Jew, would have known this idea, this word of inheritance. So if you have your Bible out, let's do a little, let's do a little jump through some biblical theology here. Genesis chapter 35. We could jump back farther, but 35 is far enough. We know that there's the promise to Abraham of a land and a blessing, a people. Abraham, Isaac, down to Jacob is who we find in Genesis chapter 35. He's wrestled with God, gets renamed to Israel. And, and Genesis chapter 35, verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again. This is page 35 of your Bibles. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob. But Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offering after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. There's this land that is coming. There's this promised land. He's promised a, a, a geographical region. The one that was promised to Abraham, was promised to Isaac, now promised to Jacob, who became Israel. By the end of Genesis, we know that... Um, that Jacob, Israel, and his family all moved to Exodus, right, to survive the famine. That's the whole story with Joseph, uh, prince of Egypt. They moved to Egypt to get rid of the famine. But then we read just a few pages into the book of Exodus that this people then leave Egypt. They come out of slavery, out of bondage, cross through the Red Sea, a baptism of sorts, and they leave, they leave um, their slavery in Egypt. And the land that is, they are going to is described as, wait for it, their inheritance. They have an inheritance that they are going to. So Exodus chapter, um, well, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy is the, the fifth book of your Bible. It's the second telling of the law, the recounting of all that happened with the people of God here. But Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 8, this land that they're going to, it's now going to be referred to as an inheritance. Deuteronomy 12, 8. You shall, do, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest 
and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies all around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, contributions that you present. This land is called an inheritance. The people of God have a physical location that they are going to that God is calling their inheritance. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, flip on back a few more pages. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19. This is page 197 of your pew Bible. It says, Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that your Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And going on in verse 1 of chapter 26, when you come into the land that your Lord your God has given you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, this, the people of God are living, looking forward to an inheritance. Was that an abstract theory to them? They're in their heads, they're, you know, they're going to live in God's land. No, it was a real thing, a real place that they're going to, this inheritance that they were going to get to. Many places, the people of God are told that they have an inheritance, and that inheritance is a real physical place called the promised land, their home. In Joshua eleven twenty three, we see that they take possession of their promised inheritance. Joshua eleven twenty three. It's for real. It's theirs. They own it. Okay, great. But why walk through all of this? Are we supposed to now inherit? Is the inheritance some land over in Israel that we're now supposed to go inherit? Like, is that what we're talking about here? But the Bible does work in types and shadows. No, that's the short answer to that. No, that our promised land, the inheritance, is not the, the nation of Israel, that land over there. But the Bible does work in types and shadows. And Peter sees this inheritance that was coming to the people of God and one day realized as their possession a foreshadowing of the inheritance that's coming to the New Testament people of God with one major difference. One major difference. It's going to be far better. And, and do not think that means less real, like it's going to be cerebral or just in your head. It's going to be far better it's not just going to be real, it's going to be even more real than the promised land in the nation of Israel. Because guess what? They, they did bring in idols, they did bring in false worship, and they lost their land. But the land, the inheritance that we are getting, according to Peter, is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading for us. It is not less real, it is far more real. Okay, so what the Christian lives for is not for abstract ideas about heaven and floating and, you know, just happy and singing hymns all the time or whatever. It is real, okay? That's why I said last week Christianity is wild. Because we're not just talking about philosophical concepts or psychological constructs or great ideas. We're talking about reality itself and the coming of a supra or a greater, a bigger reality. Why is it greater? What is it? Why is it more real? Well, it's first of all, it's imperishable. 
means it's not subject to decay, right? We have the perishable section in our, in our, in our grocery store, which is kind of fun. I mean, I guess it depends on how long your timeline is. Technically, everything in that store, and the store itself is really perishable at some level. Everything is perishable. Everything is fading and wearing out. But this inheritance is imperishable. It is not subject to decay. Everything real in this world at its best is still subject to decay. Romans 8, 21, the world is subject to decay. But in the New Testament, only God in 1 Timothy 1, 7, his word in 1 Peter 1, 23, and our resurrection bodies described in 1 Corinthians 15 are described as imperishable. It is not subject to decay. It's undefiled, meaning it's unstained from sin. We have no idea how to grasp this because we're so swimming in a sinful world and in our sinful selves. But imagine, imagine a world where love is not tainted at all by any sort of self-service or sinfulness. Imagine where greed does not exist at any level. It'll be undefiled, unstained by sin, and it will be unfading. It will not lose its beauty. These qualities of the inheritance for the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ are outrageously superior. This coming inheritance is the true and real land, the inheritance that is ahead for all who are born again, as Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 10 through 16, this inheritance that they were looking for at Peter's, at Peter's describing is the inheritance that Abraham was really looking forward to. You could flip to Hebrews 11. Uh, just the way it describes Abraham, you think he's looking for this promised land, this, this certain earth, but the writer of Hebrews sees Abraham as looking for something beyond. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, verse 14, uh, 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, a perfected one, where God is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, not a less real city, a real city in that it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, a real inheritance. This is a superior realness in the qualities of this inheritance, but it's also super in its, um, in its uh, our possession of it, right? Because it's this, imperish, this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Where is it? It's kept by God, with God for us. It's out of reach from anyone to ruin it. Think of that passage in Matthew 6 where it talks about where your treasure is, that thief can't, moth and rust can't break in and ruin, can't, can't destroy it, thief can't break in and steal. This treasure is kept by God for his people. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be diminished. It cannot be made to fade. It cannot be ruined. It does not expire. And it is kept by God. God. It's clear from 2 Peter 3.13, Peter has in mind, he uses this language. He says, 2 Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the, for the new heavens 
and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All of this coming to us because of the grace and mercy of God causing us to be born again through faith in Christ and his work on our behalf. As sure as Jesus rose from the dead, we can be sure of this real inheritance coming our way. A real inheritance. I'm not sure if my English, my language is doing the job of the distinction between an idea or a concept and a reality of this inheritance that is coming to us. How does this help us live? Well, you can persevere through many things, even great joyous things, when you know that the future is secure and the future is real. Um, do you ever wonder how we all got out here? Like, you know, you read about the Revolutionary War and all this stuff happening back on the East Coast. And why in the world did we ever settle in the Midwest? Like, what in the world was wrong with this group of people? But, you know, we had, and so you, you look it up and you read about, maybe you learned it in school and world and United States history, the Homestead Act of 1862. We won't go into all the, you know, the controversy that surrounds it. But President Lincoln signs into act the, the Homestead Act of 1862, which was giving away millions of acres of public public land and saying that if you will go and for five years live on 160 acres and you'll make an improvement, which means build a house on it and farm that land in five years time, that 160 acres becomes yours. All you have to do is move out there, work on it, build a house, establish it. And in five years, you own the land for free. It's yours. It's given to you. What in the world would possess someone to go from out east in the cities and, you know, where there's civilization and move out into the middle of nowhere and set up a home? Not the romantic side of us is like, oh, that'd be great to get away from everybody and just go live on our own somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, because what you're encountering is tons of problems, tons of stress, tons of difficulty. But to get there, to establish it, what drives them? They're, when this is all done, they're going to have something real. They're going to have their 160-acre plot. They're going to have something real. What would possess a person to forge ahead into such difficulty? The promise of a real possession coming their way. How much greater ought we to be willing to live, to live and to enjoy and magnify God, knowing that we have a far superior and secure inheritance coming our way? What empowers us to take stands for truth against the, the flow of the culture? And what if everyone around us has all kinds of names for us? What empowers us to stand for truth in love, knowing that there is a real inheritance that is coming? There's something real that is going to be ours. What gives us the power to love sacrificially for those who can't give us anything in return? What empowers us to love even our enemies, those who want ill for us? What empowers us to go ahead and love them and heap blessings on them, knowing that what we're, what we're going to get back from them is not only not repayment, but maybe more anger? What empowers us to do that? Because we know that there is an unfading, imperishable, undefiled inheritance coming for us. We have a far superior and far more secure inheritance coming our way. The writers of scriptures are not trying to satisfy our hunger for something real with momentary platitudes, life tips. Um, here's tricks to get through whatever issues. They call us like Peter and they tell us like Peter of incredible and real possessions that are in store for the believer in Jesus. 
If you do not know this inheritance as yours through faith in Christ, trust and turn to him today. Trust and turn to him today. Turn from sin, turn from self, turn from pursuits of a thousand things less glorious than Jesus and turn to him. Be born again, repent, cling to Christ. And if you do know that, if you do know Christ in this way, don't let your eyes drift off of the glorious promise that has been given to us of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us who are being guarded through faith until the revealing of Christ in the last days. All that is his is yours. Rejoice, Christian, for eternal life itself is yours. And come what may, Christ cannot be taken from you. Let's pray. God, I ask for your help. Something supernatural even has to happen in this process that you would give us eyes to see and hearts that are broken and believing. God, do that work in our hearts. God, restore to us, as Psalm 51 says, the joy of our salvation. God, I pray for a supernatural realization of the realness of who Christ is living the Christ who came to earth and took on a real body of flesh and lived true righteousness and died a real death and truly rose from the grave in victory over death so that every one of us in this room this morning can look to him in faith and be forgiven of our sins and have given to us a promised inheritance. God, may that empower us. May that embolden us. May that encourage us. God, may that comfort us through the trials of this life. The day is coming where we will live in the fullness of your joy forever. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.